0: All right, things seem to be working. Some are having a hard time, but let's begin. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. I sent out a text yesterday to only a few folks, but uh, I just had them answer this question. How would you describe life? How would you describe life? One of our uh, former members who has moved to a different state, uh, they said, uh, right now, with how things are going, it's a monotonous existence, and some of you would agree with that, right? How would you answer that back at home? Well, how would you describe your life right now? As you think about it, I want to also to hear what another person said who, who has a, uh, a new little, not brand new, but fairly new little child, and he was just being goofy when he answered this, but he said, well, from a bug's life trying to keep the queen happy, only traveling for food and survival of the fittest. How would you describe yours? If we look into our lesson from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and following, it describes different ways that we can look at life. And if you happen to have that passage open, you can look with me. First, it talks about life as being part of a family as you talk to your father. Verse 17 also mentions about being judged. So life can sometimes feel like a trial or like we're in exile or uh, foreign residents or residents not, not belonging there, aliens. Or being captive, those who are in need of being ransomed or empty Or uh, those who are experiencing new life, being born again. Or the whole idea of temporary, like the grass and flowers which wither and fall. And timeless, like the Word of God that remains forever. And if we look on both sides of our passage for today, we'll see that the... Let me just read the language to you. It goes like this. Right before it, it says this. But just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all your life. For it is written, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then later in chapter 2 it says, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So to be holy and to put all those things behind it sounds a little bit like a battle. And we're reminded of the armor that we're supposed to put on constantly in the midst of a battle. So as you think about this life, we have two different sides as we're engaged in this battle. One side results in victorious living as we see on our screens today. One side, though, we could say is being on trial, feeling captive and in need of a ransom, empty, temporary, It is filled with effort and exertion and frustration and weariness. And that's why God says, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if we're on that side where we think we're on that trial, if we're on that side and we're feeling weary and exhausted, we may even feel some anger. We might call this the futile life, not the victorious life. And because we are surrounded by those who are living in it, it seems and feels normal. And we're drawn to it by the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And it reminds me a little bit of that story I've read for you before, but i love to read again because we may forget the stories. It goes like this. A young woman named Mary was an accomplished musician who once attended my church. This is a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. For years, she had battled mental illness and had checked in and out of psychiatric institutions. She gave me permission as her pastor to speak to her therapist so my pastoral guidance to her could be well-informed. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her, her counselor told me, and they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She is quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession. And she cannot live with the idea that she had disappointed her parents. Medications helped to manage her depression, but they could not get to the root of it. Her problem was a false belief driven by an idol. She told herself if I cannot be a well known violinist, I have let down my parents and my life is a failure. She was distressed and guilty enough to die. When Mary began to believe the gospel that she was saved by grace, not by musicianship, and that though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord shall take me in, she began to get relief from her idolatrous need for her parents' approval. In time, her depression and anxiety began to lift, and she was able to reenter her life and musical career. There is legitimate guilt that is removed through repentance and restitution, and then there is irremediable Irremediable guilt. Hard for me to say. When people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, they mean that they have failed an idol whose approval is more important to them than God's. Idols function like God's in our lives. And so if we make career or parental approval our God and we fail it, then the idol curses us in our hearts for the rest of our lives. I read you that story because this last week I've had a chance to interact with a couple people in their 20s, wonderful people. I, I regard them as friends. And as I was talking with them, both of them are going through a downtime, time, pretty, pretty much struggling right now. And as they struggle, I, I listened. And, and as we listened and talked back and forth, texted a little bit back and forth, I was reminded of three words that I learned from David Paulus in, in his books years ago. Those three words I may have shared with you already before, maybe even a week or two ago, they are standards, eyes, and Savior. Would you repeat those words with me? Standards, eyes, Savior. Standards, eyes, and Savior. And so I asked them both. I said, so who gets to set the standards? Whose eyes are most important? And who's the Savior? And as I spent time with the young lady first, earlier in the week, we talked that through or we texted that through a little bit, and eventually as I, as I listened to what she was saying or writing, it finally dawned on me, you know, it certainly seems like the one who's setting the standards in your life is you, and the one whose eyes are most important are you, and the one who needs then to be the Savior is you. Could that be why you're depressed? I wonder how many times in your life and mine we are living not under just God's standards but under some of these other unrealistic standards that we ourselves or others have set up. And the only way it's going to get better is if we make the appropriate changes by... What are those two words I always want you to leave behind? We'll make it better by... Trying harder. Not how it works, right? Well, this young man I was talking with, it was really interesting because as he shared, I really thought of myself. There's a term I would use for myself for years, and that was a chameleon. Do you know what that is? Changes colors to blend in with its background. For this young man, it wasn't he himself who was setting the standards before whose eyes it was important and who was his Savior. It was others. And so he was this great chameleon. He simply knew what other people expected or thought he should be like, and he just changed colors to blend in. Whatever he needed to do in order to make other people happy. And I asked him at one point, Man, isn't that exasperating? He said, Well, what's your definition of exasperation? And he said, Is that this frustration and tiredness? And I said, Exactly. Don't you ever get frustrated and tired with trying to live your life well enough so everybody around you will be satisfied? You know, when you and I live with our eyes, our standards, and ourselves as a Savior, or others' eyes, others' standards, and others being the Savior, We are not living that. We're not living the victorious life. We're living that life which is handed down by the generations before us. We're living that life of futility. I'm reminded of that life handed down from Adam and Eve. It's that life where they... Thought that God was holding out on them, and they wanted life apart from daily dependence upon God, which turns out to be what we all struggle with in greater and lesser ways. Right? Daily dependent, dependence upon God for every moment of the day. He simply wants us to abide with Him constantly. Right walking with God, and so I want to abide with him. But he knows that I can't hop with him all the way through the day, so I need to have those times when I repent. And yet we somehow think in our messed up way of thinking that repentance is a bad thing. It's the awesome thing that God gives us to restore us again to get our eyes where they need to be when we who are sheep and like to stray turn away. That's the one hand. On the other hand, family. We have a father who loves the world so much that he gave his son. Notice what the text doesn't say in John chapter 3. It doesn't say we have a mean spirited, um, hateful God who sent his son who loves us so much. You see, we have a triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God loves us so much, he would send his son who loves us so much that they together would send the spirit for good in our lives. We have new birth in our baptism into new living. Greg Finke wrote this book, Joining Jesus on His Mission. And in this page 84, it says this, For those living within the kingdom, love is the evidence of the redemption the kingdom has brought. For those living without the kingdom, human need is the evidence that the kingdom is near and working towards bringing redemption. Okay, so God has, Jesus says to his, those in his day, um, it's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. God has done all of this, which leads to this victorious living. What God has done through the shedding of Christ's blood for us. How then does this impact our lives? What does victorious living then begin to look like? Well, Greg Finke writes about that also a little bit later in that same book. He says this, I have a pastor friend in Chicago. He has been trying to reach out in friendship to a neighbor. The neighbor knows my friend is a pastor and wants nothing to do with him. He doesn't want religion and figures that's what the pastor neighbor is peddling. Then one Saturday, the neighbor unexpectedly shows up at the pastor's back door. He just shows up there. Can we talk, he says? Sure, the pastor says. Come on in. The neighbor sat down at the kitchen table and began to tell the pastor about what had happened the night before at the National Honor Society induction, the ceremony he had attended at the local high school. At the ceremony, he heard a speech given by a young lady who was being inducted into the National Honor Society. It was a special occasion because the young lady is autistic. However, in spite of her challenges, she had qualified for the National Honor Society and had been invited to give the speech, telling a little of her story. As it turned out, a good deal of her story revolved around Ben, who just happened to be the pastor's son. Ben was a student at the time at the same high school. He was a senior and a big football player, a lineman. But every day, Ben had made it a point to come up to this autistic young lady, get her attention, smile, and tell her good morning. A simple act of goodness. Well within his reach on a daily basis. What Ben couldn't have realized was the hope his simple act of goodness inspired in this young lady. You see, every day, Ben's simple act of kindness came in opposition to a bucketful of unkind acts and insults that made life at the high school very, very hard for this young autistic lady. In her speech, she said she often struggled in the morning just to summon the courage to face another day of school. But because of Ben and his simple act of goodness, she would find the courage she needed to face another day of classes. And tonight, she wanted to thank Ben and let him know what a big difference his goodness had made to her. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. And the neighbor wanted to come to the pastor to the pastor neighbor, and let him know. Somehow, this simple act of daily goodness shown to an autistic young lady not only blessed the young lady, but slipped past the neighbor's shield he had built against religion. There was no baptism that Saturday morning in the pastor's home, but there was a new opportunity for conversation and friendship between two neighbors. All this because a young man took up the simple practice of doing good. Loving the new life, it's timeless, it's filled with hope and joy and love. This new life, this victorious life, meeting needs in love. You know, if you look at First Corinthians chapter 13 with me, you'll see it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but Do not have love. I'm only a a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And you hear those words and you say, if I do all this sacrificial stuff, if I have a great faith, if all these things are happening, but if I don't have love, which is what first, it says in 1 Peter, that we're supposed to exercise to each other, that's a victorious life. I have a question for you. How hard do you have to try to do that? I feel like I'm screaming, but I want you to hear How hard do you have to try? Just a little bit harder? Are you super duper close? I find I'm within like six trillion miles away from that standard. I can't even see it from where I stand. If I was on the top of the mountain, I couldn't see it from where I stand. You see, that's the definition of love for us which is our duty, but I like what N.T. Wright says. It's not only our duty, it's our delight because Jesus is love. And it's our destiny because that's how we'll look one day when all wrongs have been made right, and you and I will stand in the presence of Jesus, seeing him face to face and made exactly pure as he is. One day, that which is our duty will be our destiny. One day, that which is a definition we will have. And today, part of our victorious living is receiving the great gift he has for us, this great gift of his awesome love manifested by his shedding his blood on the cross. I wonder how many of us, how many of us that we don't even do the one where it says he keeps no record of wrongs. How many of us come here and even though you announce this is our sin and you hear me speak God's words to you of you are forgiven, how many of you still hold on and you go back home with this list of things you've done as you keep record of all your wrongs? And if you're not built like that, how many of you keep and hold on to the wrongs others have done to you? I can tell you that when you do just those two little things, that ain't that. That's not victorious living. That might be trying to be victorious on my own. A little bit more effort and I'll get there. Please stop. There's a word I've been avoiding this whole time, and there's a great friend of mine who lives in a different place. And I, I said, how would you describe life? And he says, well, what do you mean? And so I, I called him, and he, and he shared this with me. Now, he shared it much more eloquently than I ever can. But this is basically what he reminded me of. There's a word in verse 17 of 1 Peter, and that word is exile. Well, we're in Exile. You might think of your shelter in place as exile. But when Peter wrote this, Peter knew of God's people. He knew that because of their sin, they went to exile to Babylon, and they were there 70 years, separated from the land that they loved, from their homeland. We also can feel that way, strangers in this world. But when you're in exile, you feel like you're captive, And you are, you feel like you need to be ransomed, which you have been. But you know what else is happening in exile? What's happening in exile is that God is at work. God is at work to draw us back to him. You see, exile fits on both sides of the battle. Because it feels very much like captivity and struggle. And yet it's the gift that God gives us so that we might take the time to remember that it's not about me and how well I'm doing and how I'm doing all the right things and I read the Bible for an hour and I pray for an hour and a half and boy, look at me, aren't I great. It's about, are my eyes on Jesus yet? You see... The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You see, what Jesus does is he sends his spirit, the spirit that convicts us of our sins, and so that we say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And how it says in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it was talking about death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The power of uh, uh, death is sin, and it goes down to the law, and it says, Jesus Christ has given us the victory. Victorious living isn't trying harder. It's not getting everything right. Victorious living is eyes on Jesus, remembering what he's accomplished for us. Because, you see, he sets the standards. He's the one who's always watching in love and caring for us, and he's as it says in Psalm 46, verse 1, a very present help in time of trouble. One of our members here, Leroy Anderson, has that. One of his favorite verses. If I ask him, what's Psalm 46, 1? He always knows it. I would love it if you memorized that verse with Leroy. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Would you say it with me? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. When I'm struggling with life and I'm living the futile life and I'm in the midst of this battle, how do I get over here? Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Amen. Amen.